Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. My guest today is Carl Safina, and the topic is Quelling the Storm at Sea and the Ocean View from Lazy Point. Hello, Carl. How are you doing, Rob? Excellent. Um, let me say a bit about um, your background. Carl, Dr. Carl Safina is a prominent ecologist and marine conservationist. He's president of the not-for-profit Blue Ocean Institute, adjunct professor at Stony Brook University, and the recipient of the prestigious MacArthur, Pugh, and Guggenheim Fellowships. That's three of them, not just one giant one. <laughs> and he's an, <laughs> yeah. um, an award-winning author. Uh, Carl Safina's books include Song for the Blue Ocean, The View from Lazy Point, which we'll talk about today, and A Sea of Flames, which is coming out, I guess, next month, and we'll hear a little bit about that, among other publications that Carl's put out. Um, he's, you know, I particularly like his book on albatrosses, and um, you've got another seabird book, don't you? Uh, no, not another seabird no. book, but there are seabirds in, in uh, really yeah. all the books, yeah. Because I studied so seabirds for a long time, so I love them. Yeah, so we're going to get to that. And also, Carl is host of Saving the Ocean on PBS television, um, which, which just has not yet premiered, I guess. Uh, yes, it's starting in April. Uh-huh. It's starting in April, too. Okay, so you're calling us from not far from Lazy Point, Long Island, right? Yes, I'm calling you from the east end of Long Island. I'm actually at the uh, Peconic Public Broadcasting radio station here. Wow. And uh, how, how goes the nature? Oh, lots of signs of spring. March is a very, very active month, although we also have signs of winter. We had snow this morning. <laughs> Fortunately for us, none of it stuck. We, we had a beautiful winter with a lot of very heavy snow, but I think we're all ready for spring and just last weekend, um, we were out and saw the first ospreys that had returned. The red-winged blackbirds are singing in force. The skunk cabbages are coming up. There were wood frogs calling very vociferously from the, from the ponds, and some of the painted turtles were already out, sunning themselves on the logs. So it really started to seem like spring. Then it got cold again. <laughs> well, I envy you. I'm up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and... 
we're behind you in, in the seasons. I remember once in March going down the Woods Hole and having to call my wife up so she could hear the spring peepers that were starting up or something. Uh, yeah, the she spring peepers are yet. just starting here, just a few peeps, not really chorusing yet. I envy you. That's, that's incredible. Um, I, I wanted to uh, delve right into your book, uh, the, um, the View from Lazy Point. Mm-hmm. And um, particularly, I was... Uh, the book is just fantastic. The description is just to die for, and I recommend this highly. Uh, but in the chapter about May, you really get personal into about yourself and, and um, your childhood. And, and uh, I was wondering if you would um, read to us parts about, um, about going fishing, I guess. Okay, sure. Okay, so by the second week of May... I've seen no swirls or splashes indicating fish along the shore, but the date suggests that a few casts would be reasonable, so toward dusk I take a rod and walk to the beach. The tide is ebbing nicely, creating a swift current. When the water pours from the bay into the sound like this, fish, if there are any, concentrate in the narrow cut. Nothing is showing at the surface, but maybe some fish are holding near the bottom, so I choose a small lure that sinks and resembles a little fish swimming. I cast it out and reel it back. Fishing isn't esoteric or mysterious. There are just various facts and fields one accumulates. Where to go, when, how to tell if it's worth staying, how to judge when the wind will help or hinder, knowing the local haunts and movements of different fish throughout the year, various lures and baits. All accumulated knowledge merely facilitates informed guesswork. The most valuable thing one can learn is how much you don't know. So you try a lure you know works, and if it doesn't work, you try another. What I most like about fishing is knowing a place well enough to find the fish. In an exotic locale, especially with a guide, fishing becomes just a matter of following instructions. Separated from my own understanding of the place, my seasons there, my kitchen, and my friends, fishing loses most of its appeal. It's not that I don't simply enjoy catching fish. I do. There remains the sudden connection to that startling aliveness. How else would you know what's in all that deep, dark water? But to me, home water is best. To know what's in the water before you get there, to find it where you seek it, and to conjure it into grasp is a different affirmation of intimacy. It's a little like the difference between meeting a stranger and meeting someone someone who's waiting for you. You cast, you cast again and again, investing your effort, trying and failing, a modicum of eventual success and life and death stakes, all acts become allegory. And precisely because it carries symbolic qualities, fishing can, in its best moments, feel like art. Fishing in a place is a meditation on the rhythm of tide, season, the arc of the year, the seasons of a life. The more repetitive, the better because the experience is like a wheel that, by going round and around as though doing the same thing, continually covers new ground, bringing you to a very different place. The lure comes wiggling to my rod. I cast again. For those who don't fish, the ocean is just scenery. The beauty in fishing comes to the senses as a search for connection with deep-dwelling mysteries, Being at the water becomes a very different proposition when sending forth that inquiring, hopeful filament. I fish to scratch the surface of those mysteries, and for nearness to the beautiful, 
and to reassure myself that the world remains. I fish to wash off some of my grief for the peace we so squander. I fish to dip into that great and awesome pool of power that propels these epic migrations. I fish to feel and steal a little of that energy. Thank you. It's just remarkable how deep you go into, you know, a place. And I particularly like, you know, your point of view that uh, we needn't step away from our home or our immediate neighborhoods. And then there's that um, tension that you talk about in the process of fishing. Yeah, you know, I mean, if, when you go to an exotic place, you, you, go, you go to somewhere where there are people for, who, for them, it's just home. So the, the local is always the exotic, and it depends really what frame of mind you bring to it. You can, you can be in a very exotic place just staying at home, but you can also know the place really well, and that makes the experience much richer. Well, this is the strength of your book, is that, you know, Thoreau and Henry Beston, they, they looked at their Walden Pond and their outermost house as, as really an exotic place and the detail that they, they observe. That, you know, we don't tend to do that. We tend to take the local for granted and not, not be aware and look the way you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. I, it, you, um, it, it takes maybe a little bit of practice to never see the local as something you take for granted and always see it as a new place. But you can get in the habit of doing that. Yeah, you see it by the way people are walking around. You see who's looking up to see if the hawk's roosting on the roof edge or something, and mm-hmm. who's just walking with their heads down all the time. Right, right, exactly. And, and then the whole process of, of fishing is, is one of connecting. It isn't one of conquering. It's one of connecting, right? It's, uh, for me, entirely one of connecting, and in fact, the danger in it is the extent to which there is the potential for conquering, because, um, you know, you need to practice a little bit of restraint so that you don't overdo the, the, you know, you don't overdo it and deplete the fish, which unfortunately has been done in a lot of places, and and connecting not only with the natural world around you, but bringing it into your home, um, having it be your food, having it be the the convener for your friends to come and visit, uh, all of these things, you know. And really, life life is all about connections. That's the only thing that really matters in life. Absolutely, and and then knowing the rhythm, so. You know, you know the places you fish, and so you know when there's an abundance that can afford you can afford to take from. Right. Uh, my fishing, for instance, has changed a lot over the years, and the fish that most thrilled me to catch, which were big, the bluefin tuna and mako sharks, I don't really I don't fish for them anymore, and uh, I don't I haven't fished for bluefin tuna in over a decade. The last mako shark that I killed was about 12 years ago. So things have changed. I, I fish for the fish that are um, robust in numbers and uh, have recovered from former lows. Um, you know, the things that I don't have to worry too much about. Well, there is this sense of stewardship that fishermen like you bring to the resource. Yeah, and bring back to the community, I think. You know, the resource doesn't 
necessarily need us. It, it did quite well for millions of years without us. But I think that no, we but need, somebody needs to realize that we're at a point now, and we've been at this point for a few decades now, where it is it's possible to deplete the world if we don't restrain ourselves. Right, right, and it, yeah, yeah, but it, you know, it, it's this, you know, living, some, striking some kind of harmony instead of just, you know, closing off, you know, um, huge areas or closing off areas just for no human interaction is is something to do for national parks or, or you know, national preserves or something, but um, for, for most of our resources, we need to find some kind of ethic of stewardship that enables us to take from it and live with it. Um, mm-hmm. Because the respect that, that you show for the fish is, is perhaps more respect than people who don't fish at all show for fish. Oh, I think that's quite true, yes. We're going to have to break for a commercial, and we'll be right back with Carl Spina after the break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. I'm talking with Carl Safina, author of the view from Lazy Point, and Carl was uh, just read us a piece from his 
chapter about the month of May in the book, and we're talking about fishing. And uh, Carl, um, in in, your, in that chapter, you uh, you note that Ben Franklin he once resolved not to eat what he called animal food, and yet there he is becalmed off Block Island, and he has a change in quote inclination. What happened to Ben Franklin with that? Yeah, this is a a really great uh, little passage here. It says, um, this is Ben Franklin writing now, Benjamin Franklin. In my first voyage from Boston, being becalmed off Block Island, our people set about catching cod and hauled up a great many. Now, just I just want to interrupt right there and say that if you just happen to drop a line somewhere out off Block Island today thinking that you'd like to catch a cod, good luck. <laughs> but anyway, they, they simply were... No wind, so, okay, let's just catch cod. Hitherto, he says, I had stuck to my resolution of not eating animal food, taking every fish uh, every fish as a kind of unprovoked murder, since none of them had or ever could do us any injury that might justify the slaughter. All this seemed very reasonable, but I had formerly been a great lover of fish, and when this came hot out of the frying pan, it smelt admirably well. I balanced some time between principle and inclination till I recollected that when the fish were opened, I saw smaller fish taken out of their stomachs. Then thought I, if you fish eat one another, I don't see why we mayn't eat you. So I dined upon cod very heartily. So convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature, since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. Isn't that great? That is incredible. Uh, so you grew up in this environment. I, I mean, you started off as a young child in, in this, you know, the end of uh, Long Island there. And um, and so I, I like how, in, well, in the book you describe um, how, you know, while well, you finish college and you need to get a job. So what happens? Can you read us a piece of that? Well, I should say that I, I started out actually as a city kid. I lived in Brooklyn where I was born until I was 10 years old. So it was really not my not until my adolescence that I got into the suburbs and then with uh, the benefit of my bicycle, I got myself a little bit beyond the suburbs. So I'll read you a little bit uh, here. I finished college and was faced with the need to get a job and in general, so I was told, to grow up. All the men I knew were grown up. I couldn't see a way of avoiding it. But then I discovered a remarkable social institution that allows one to defer growing up, sometimes indefinitely. It's called graduate school. Signing up to pursue a Ph.D. qualified me to apply for grants, and I submitted a proposal to get a boat to study turns. It worked. With an 18-foot boat named Turnabout, I was thrilled to begin discovering what seabirds did at sea. I also discovered, slowly, the elegant power of science. I'd locate a feeding flock, then pilot through and past the diving birds while generating a sonar profile of the fish below. Next, I'd tally individual birds' fishing success rates. I also trolled fishing lures behind the boat so that if a fish grabbed a lure just after dark marks appeared on the sonar, I could reel it up and say what kind of predatory fish the marks represented. This clearly beat growing up. Hmm. Yeah, so off you go to study turns, 
and um, you have some wonderful descriptions of your research. I, I guess you were mostly researching common terns, uh, but the other turn out there is the paler uh, turn, the roseate turn. Roseate turn. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the, which is more rare. So rarer, uh, tell yeah. us about tell us about your research and and about the ecology of those two birds. Those two birds are so closely related that they sometimes interbreed, not not very often at all, but occasionally, because they're really very close, and they, they, they do breed in the same colonies, common turn pairs and roseate turn pairs in the same areas, and you often see them out foraging together. So the question for me was, why is one very abundant and one very rare? And I set about, uh, in part, to learn the answer to that question. And what I discovered after a few years of looking at them, first, first I have to say, it, just being able to tell them apart at a distance was an acquired skill. But after studying them and, and um, looking at the, the relative uh, ratio of common and roseate terns in different feeding flocks in different places, what I realized was that the common terns can feed in um, pretty much anywhere that small fish are driven to the surface in deep water where, where larger fish like bluefish or tuna drive small fish to the surface, common terns can feed there, and they feed in these dense flocks. So there's a lot of jostling and a lot of competition. The roseate terns have just slightly shorter wings, and they can't hover and compete like that as well. So they get driven to the edge of those flocks. They don't do well in those situations, but they can dive a little deeper because they're more compact and they do better in other situations where the common terns don't do as well. The, where the roseates do as well is more like the mouths of inlets and where water is rushing over sandbars, where physical structures are bringing the small fish up to the surface, like a shallowing sandbar is bringing the fish to the surface. With it. So those places are a lot less common, in, and um, there's far less foraging area where the roseate terns are really well suited. And I and I feel that I did discover after a few years of study the answer to the question, why are common terns common and roseate terns rare? Yes, it, and it, what's fascinating is that the roseated terns need the, the shallow water, you know, and the shallow banks and stuff, especially at the mouths of harbors, are the first things to be dredged away. So do you think they've seen more of a loss of habitat than the common tern for their food? They probably have seen more of a loss of their foraging habitat for that very reason, because most of the inlets would be a whole series of shallow sandbars, and um, a lot of inlets are dredged deep to keep those sandbars from forming, and that, that directly takes the habitat away from roseate terns. So that is, that is something that, that is very likely to have been a factor for them. And so now I understand more about the plans to build windmills in Nantucket Sound are to be on top of Horseshoe Shoals, which are sandy, gravelly shoals in the middle of Nantucket Sound. And they actually shoal up to about three and a half feet at low water. Um, and this could be a problem for roseates then, right? Or well, can the, they pretty the, much fish around? Know, I, in general, I, I'm a big proponent of clean renewable eternal energy, whether it's wind or solar or geothermal or tidal power. Uh, But all of the energy sources involve trade-offs, and there is a danger from those turning turbines to to birds and bats that are flying at that level. 
depending on how high the turbines are and how fast they turn, it, it may or may not be uh, a significant problem for these turns and for other kinds of birds. But it is a concern, and it's something that should be you know, part of the design plan to try to make them work in ways that will do the least damage possible. But the structure, the stanchions, and you know, if they weren't moving parts, just just the dist- the disturbance of putting structures up there on the shallow waters. Yeah, I that, don't think I don't think that that will be a problem. Too much. Do you see them fish off of you know harbors and stuff? Or I'm sorry, say that again. Do you see the these? Do you see uh, roseates uh, fishing around structures on the on the shallows? Like uh, the yeah, because they're, they're often they're often right up against shorelines and uh, you know rock jetties and things like that. So I don't think that uh, a stationary structure is going to be a problem for them. Right. Well, that's reassuring because the, they're they're not finding many birds being harmed by the uh, windmills off of Copenhagen, and it's the same kinds of birds I think that are over there. Similar, yeah, but, uh, yeah, similar. Um, excellent. Uh, so. Okay, Carl, help me out. How do I tell a roseate from a common turn? Uh, well, it turns this out a- not to be that hard, but it does take a practiced eye. The, the roseate turns in any kind of light have a more rapid wing beat than the common turn. So you have, to, you have mm. to know how rapid their wing beat is, and you have to know that by looking at enough of them to get a sense of it. You can't really describe that. But that no, but if you've been watching common turns, you get used to the rhythm of the common turns, and then there's this weird guy who's beaten faster, right? That's, that's exactly right. And at different, at different times of the year and at different day, times of the day, they look differently. The rosia turns are lighter. They're whiter looking, and in some light you can really see that. During the breeding season, they have longer tail streamers, but they, they start molting that toward the end of the summer. During the breeding season, they have an all-black bill, but that starts to change and get more like a common turn bill later in the season. But it's that wing beat that is most reliable. Yeah, that's great to hear because I, I used to watch the hawk migrations come through, and the only way I could tell the sharp shin hawk from the Cooper's hawk was that the wing beat, you know, because they were uh-huh. different size, but they're the same shape and color. So you, you kind of like, like you said, you learn the the rhythm, like you learn the pattern of the waves, and then you can tell what's the variation and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So where did your um, where did your turn research lead you to? Oh well, it led me to be on the water a lot, which is really what I wanted to do. That was my first objective. It led me to a PhD. It led me to understand that the ocean was changing a lot, and that brought me my whole career. And uh, most recently, it led me right to the very opening of of this book, The View from Lazy Point, because I start it with a little scene that involves sliding a fishing rod into my kayak because I see the birds gathering over the bay. So um, turns, turns have been my friends for a long time, and I've gotten an awful lot from them. Carl, I have to interrupt and say we'll be right back after this break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're here with Carl Safina, and uh, we're talking about his book, The View from, from Lazy Point. And we've been talking roseate turns and common turns. And, Carl, in, toward the end of the book, you really pull it all together with three things that we must understand more fully. That is, life is a fully networked community that we ought to act with humility, reverence, and caution, and that the story we write with our lives, I'm quoting you here, the story that we write with our lives affects those living near and far, not just now, but in the near and distant future. So tell us more about these overarching moral themes that speak to a widening circle. Well, it's, it seems to me that the whole history of human progress is a widening circle of compassion and, and inclusion, and that everything that counts as, as an advance it, I, I'm t- talking about a moral and ethical advance, occurs when we include more people in our sense of community and when we include more of the living world in our sense of community. And every time that we try to emphasize the differences, we look back on those times and say that that was a very big mistake. So we can you know, celebrate the differences but realize that we're all in the same community of life that is that is where we make our progress, and that is that indicates the direction in which we should be 
traveling. Yes, you talk about taking the focus off of ourselves. Right. Every you know, ever since Copernicus and the idea that the that we are not at the center of the universe, every time we understand that that we are not in the middle, we get a better, more realistic and more practical understanding of the true nature of life. Yes. So that, you know, that's that works on the scale of the universe and on the scale of our families. Right, and our backyards and our communities and uh, all kinds of scales. Yep. And then, as you describe in your book, it's amazing how doing things in our own backyard, let's say, has implications to other backyards that we couldn't imagine. Right, indeed. That's, um, I think, uh, the biggest failure of our whole economic system is that we privatize the profits and then we socialize the costs. If you if you think about coal, for example, we say that coal is cheap because we we don't include in the price of coal the cost of blowing mountains apart to get at it, the cost of the health of the workers and the asthma of their children, or the acid mine runoff that um, kills things in the streams and rivers, or the mercury that gets into our seafood from the coal smoke, or the fact that it's changing the heat balance of the whole planet, affecting agriculture and turning the oceans acidic. So coal is actually the most expensive fuel that we have ever lit a match to, and yet it's priced very cheap because we just keep what we want and we let everybody else share the costs. And that that's a pretty out-of-whack system, really, that, that can't really work very well for the benefit of humanity in the long term. Yeah, yeah it's remarkable the, the extent of suffering of, of people and wildlife um, at the for the benefit of a few. And the unbelievable risks that we are running instead of operating cautiously to keep everything together. Mm. So how do we sail these unknown waters with such treacherous shores looming large to leeward? Well, I, I say at the end of the book that compassion, this idea of including more of the living community in our sense of our community points us in the right direction and, and really is a compass. It's a good compass to sail by, the compass of compassion. Great analogy. Uh, could you read a bit from uh, the, chap- the last chapter, January, about advancing compassion? Sure. Um, so the dilemma is to be compassionate in a world that is a very rugged world, that's very, very tough, right? That's really the, mm. That's really the problem here. So, to advance compassion and yet survive in a world of appetites, that is our challenge. Where any weakness is crushed or exploited, empathy must be load-bearing. Yet compassion may be the lightest, strongest concept yet devised, because century upon century it wages a widening peace. The compass of compassion asks not what is good for me, but what is good, not what is best for me, but what is best. Not what is right for me, but what is right. Not how much can we take, but how much ought we leave and how much might we give. 
not what is easy, but what is worthy, not what is practical, but what is moral. With each action, we decide whether to sow the grapes of wrath or the seeds of peace. The compass of compassion suggests that very few things, each simple, are needed. We shouldn't hate people for the group they were born into or because we hold conflicting beliefs about things that cannot be seen. We can't infinitely take more from or infinitely add more people to a planet that is finite. While living in a world endowed with self-renewing energy, we can't run civilization on energy that diminishes the world. If we can get these simple things under control, I think we could be okay. But simple does not mean easy. Yet more than ever before in history, we can now understand what's needed. Yeah. Boy, that's the challenge. Yeah, that is the challenge. And there's a lot at stake, uh, whether we answer that challenge well or, or badly. Yeah, and the, and the emphasis is on understanding what is needed instead of thinking we can master and fully understand the complex systems that we depend on. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, that there's this whole stalling tactic of we don't know enough to act, and yet the complexity of nature and the inherent unexpectedness things that happen there just um, are awesome, and that's what draws us to go out into nature. But it, it makes, you know, having all the expected knowledge before one acts, you know, quixotic and impossible. Well, we, we often act without knowing really much of anything. And uh, yeah. sometimes that creates really big problems. But, you know, the the institutions that we run our businesses and run run our daily lives with were mainly developed before we understood anything about how the world really works. Capitalism was invented 700 years ago. Our religions are thousands of years old. Our philosophies are thousands of years old. And yet we only started to understand that the world can change and didn't always look the way it looks now about 200 years ago. People didn't know the world was round until about uh, 200 years after capitalism was invented. Didn't know anything about... um, you know, the fact that there had been dinosaurs, uh, that uh, the Earth was different, that we're all related, that all life is related until the mid-1850s. We didn't know that germs caused disease until the 1860s. We didn't know anything about genetics until the middle of the 1800s, nothing about ecology until the 20th century, nothing about the structure of genetic inheritance until the 1950s, and yet we continue to run the world with medieval institutions and ancient concepts, and the disconnect is literally killing us. Well, I think the concept of compassion and respect is critical there, because the, the aspect of compassion is that you don't ask for, a, a, you know, you don't have to approve, you don't have a jury approved a proposal of what you're feeling before you feel it kind of thing. You don't, yeah. you, you, compassion isn't total rationality. It's, it's given unreservedly uh, as is respect. You know, you respect another's opinion or another's uh, system's way of operating without feeling you have to fully understand all the trophic levels before one can, can manage. 
So it, it's it's really appropriate that that you are emphasizing compassion. Well, it's it's um, it's really one of the very most fundamental human traits. And when people lack compassion and lack the ability to feel empathy, which is the basis for compassion, that's the definition of being a sociopath. So it's uh, it's obviously a very fundamental and very critical thing, and it's one that we should try to advance and develop and pay more attention to. Yes, and our you know our, our climate change problem with carbon in the atmosphere and, and many environmental problems came with the rise of industry, and with the rise of industry came these corporations that were not human; they were they're, they're something else. And I think corporations don't have those human capacities of compassion and respect, and that could be a big problem right there. No, they don't at all, because they, they act entirely uh, or, or almost entirely, overwhelmingly, in their own short-term self-interest, where the, the, uh, the profit margin is everything. But life is about relationships, and it's about asking, what, what happens if we do this? What happens to other people? If we do this, what happens in our children's lifetime or their children's lifetime if we do this now? And that's not the kind of things that corporations are set up to worry about. And yeah, worry or about. even to operate without asking the question. Just have respect that it's not good to pour pollutants into the into the system, that uh, it, it can't be good. And people ask me, you know, how do I make improvements in my own community and, and to the environment. And I say, well, if you have trouble thinking of stuff, ask a kid because he's closer to the ground. Uh-huh. And he's probably noticing what's going in the drains or what yeah. the obvious things that uh, we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yep. And, and what I like about your book is that you demonstrate how if one takes a minute to pause and observe nature uh, wherever one is, uh, one is rewarded by seeing things uh, unexpected, and um, it makes one more aware of uh, what could be going wrong or aware of early indicators. Well, as I say, if, you, if you're looking right, you can see the whole world from wherever you happen to be. Right. But if you don't understand that the, the red-winged blackbird's call is a sign of healthy ecosystems, that it's not a silent spring, uh, that's, that's too bad. Yeah, exactly. And, there's a lo- and there's a lot left. There's a lot left to work with, but the stakes are very high right now. Yeah. My guest is Carl Safina. We'll be right back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm speaking with the prominent ecologist and marine conservationist, Dr. Carl Safina. Carl, if people want to know more about your work or find out when your next publication is coming out or what TV um, broadcast you're working on, what do they do? Um, well, it's carlsafina.org or blueocean.org or search for Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina. That's the new television series that's coming up on PBS. So plenty of ways to find me. and. Um, Facebook, either my Facebook page or the Blue Ocean Institute Facebook page, or um, follow me on Twitter. So, doing all that stuff. And on Twitter, are you Carl Safina or are you Fish yes. Man or uh-huh. who are you? Yep. <laughs> just me. Yeah, no, just, just me. Carl Safina. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, excellent. Um, so, there's there's a life beyond the view from Lazy Point. Although I'm reluctant to leave it, it's such a good book. Um, and uh, so tell us about your new um, TV series that are about people who have solutions to conservation. Yeah, the, the, the new problems. series is called Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina, and it's going to start airing on different PBS stations starting in April and later this springtime. Um, it'll be a check-your-local-listings type of deal. We've just started putting it out to the stations, so um, more stations are coming on, and... Um, Good to look on the web for announcements about what what stations are airing it when or where you could find it on the web. Um, the the whole premise of the show is yes we know about the fact that there are problems but show us solutions. So every episode profiles people who have solutions and are working to make things better. And I think that makes it kind of unique. Yes, it's a very positive program. I was fortunate to to uh, see a trailer of some of the um, shows coming up. And in particular, I'd like you to take us to the Indian Ocean 
to the Zanzibar Archipelago, to Pemba Island, known by Arab sailors as Al Huthra. So, how goes the land of cloves in uh, over there? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, it's off the east coast of uh, Tanzania in East Africa, and the incredible story that we found there is that uh, on a very crowded, very poor island, people are starting to not only protect what's left of their coral reefs, but also replant and revive their mangroves that had been largely cut down, which, of course, protect them from storms and storm surges and are the nursery grounds for many of the fish that um, they rely on for food. And the reason that they have found this motivation to protect them is that the local imams in the mosques have found verses in the Quran, formerly not really emphasized, that show them that the reason that we're here, according to the Quran, is that humans are to be the good stewards for creation. And it says things like, if you cut a tree, you must plant a tree. And that is motivating them to plant their mangroves. So I was out with them, um, literally planting mangroves with my feet in the mud. We had we had a wonderful time. And out on the spectacular coral reefs that are still really good there, although surrounding uh, waters have had lots of problems, blast fishing, people using explosives to fish on coral reefs, not a good idea. And they're realizing that, you know, we could lose these things. And for them, they really rely on them. It's not like it's an option or that things will be okay with or without their reefs and their mangroves. They they will not be okay for them. So they're realizing that and they're finding a religious motivation to do so. Mm. Quite quite exceptional, that story. Yeah, a lot of a lot of compassion for the uh for the natural world there. Right, and really realizing that their community involves that natural community, and without it, they don't have a chance. Right. And then, uh, to the other extreme, uh, you're about to come out with a book about the uh, Gulf oil blowout. Yeah, that book is coming out in the middle of April. It's called A Sea in Flames, and it's about the Gulf blowout, um, what made it happen, what people did while the oil was flowing, and what the real problems really are. And um, so that's quite a message to get out there. Um, is it, are there something, well, say some more about this. I mean, I've heard great, you've been doing some great television interviews and so forth. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first of all, the, the blowout was completely unnecessary. It was caused by a lot of extremely bad judgment, very risky decision-making, and several awful, awful decisions had to be made all in a row to make that well blow out. So it wasn't really an accident. It was the result of a culture that allows people to behave in a way that is really risky. Then when the oil was flowing, uh, there was a total lack of preparedness, nothing in place to deal with it, to shut off a leak in a pipe and um, to control the flow of oil. I mean, realize it is an oil well, after all. You would think that they would know how to control oil flowing out of an oil well. So the the, uh, lack of of preparedness, it was absolutely appalling. And people um, went crazy. They they became totally hysterical. The the Gulf turned into uh, a mini-police state. Lots of people 
spent lots of hours and loads of money doing things that made absolutely no difference and didn't help anything at all. People were warning of uh, catastrophes that were you know, always next to impossible, warning that there would be a hurricane that would hurl vast mats of oil inland and destroy agriculture in five southern states, things like that that were just ridiculous. And everybody we had, just became hysterical. We a, uh, excuse me for a minute, Carl. Yeah. We had a program where I was interviewing um, someone from the Gulf Restoration Network, and just before he came on, or the day before, they were announcing that the oil droplets that are suspended in the waters have disappeared and must have all gone away. And so this scientist came on to say that the blue crab nopoli are full of uh, oil chemicals. And uh, so, you know, the media totally missed the, you know, where did all, all the oil droplets go? Well, they go uh, to but, food but cycles you, everywhere. Yeah, but, it, but if, you, if you read my book, there was a follow-up to that thing about the crab larvae, and that is that that wasn't oil. And the scientists um, were, oh. you know, the, the media did not follow up with them, but when one reporter did, they found out that, oops, that was a mistake. It looked like oil, and it wasn't oil. The, uh, there was really only one uh, person from the federal government who said that the oil had disappeared. Uh, her colleagues immediately jumped on her saying, that's ridiculous, that's not what we're saying, that's not what our report is saying. We know there's oil in the water, we know it could be bad. So there was a, just um, a tremendous amount yeah. of misinterpreting and misreporting on all sides, and my book tries to take all of that into account and show what was really going on, what people really did and didn't say, what they really did and didn't mean, and uh, and what was happening. But a lot of but it was really um, just it got nuts, and a lot of things got very very distorted. So it was a it was a crazy time, and uh, people were uh, really full of anguish that thinking that their way of life was and their businesses were destroyed forever. But within a few months, they started reopening the areas. I mean, the big problem initially yeah, it's back. was Carl, that... we're out of time, so can we have Oh, great, on. okay. Um, yes, so look, look for your book coming out in April. And Carl Safina's book is, that we've been talking about is titled The View from Lazy Point. And this is a colossal book of awe, wonder, and hope for ocean wildlife. It's a great book to own and dive into again and again. I urge you to take a look at this book. And, Carl, I want to thank you for sharing with us our views and, ocean ad and your ocean adventures. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really been a treat. It's just been fascinating. Uh, next time on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, I'll be talking with Native Americans about this spring's Mother Earth Water Walk, where pails of seawater will be collected in Machias, Maine, Gulfport, Mississippi, Aberdeen, Washington, and Churchill, Manitoba, and then they'll be walked to Madigan Lake in Wisconsin near the headwaters of the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. So you can join me on April 13th when our topic will be Mother Earth Water Walk. Because I only broadcast new episodes twice a month, I invite you to subscribe to the RSS feed at this website or subscribe for free podcasts on iTunes. For Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, thank you for sojourning with us today. 
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.